Stay tuned for the organic farm stand coming right up. Corn in the fields and listen to the rice when the wind blows across the water. King harvest is surely come. I work for the union because she's so good to me. My name is Richard Hill. Laura Modlin, I see you right over there on the opposite side of the console. How is it going today? It's good. Um, I've been really enjoying the sunshine today. And um, the, the snow gives a nice mood to the winter now. Yeah, you finally got the snow you've been praying for. <laughs> yeah, I think we got about five or six inches where I am. Uh-huh. We might have gotten a little more down here in Brantford. And yeah. um, we're also joined here by Steve Mono out there on uh, Masaro Farm. Steve, what's the winter like today out there? Uh, the winter is great here and it's uh, great to be with you as always. Yes, we've got a nice covering of snow and we are lucky with this, this snow. Uh, it didn't come with much wind, even though some wind was in the forecast. And so we don't have any major drifts along the farm, which is often the case. You know, we're on top of a hill and whenever there's storms there's often a lot of wind and so we'll get big piles in some area and some areas that will be bare but we've got a nice even blanket of snow across the farm uh, it's a good covering and it's you know slid off this off the high tunnels as it should it started to slide off the barn in our house so yeah we've got a, a lovely winter farm scene over here wow I love okay it when the, i love it when the snow starts falling down off of roofs that's really nice Mm, that that's very childish of you laura i must say <laughs> well i share that i watch i watch the the snow slide off of the high tunnels from my window here so make sure everything's okay i've got to you know we want the high tunnels close so we can see if they need any attention in storms and such but uh you know we can stay warm with a tea or coffee or cocoa and, and see it slide off and know that it doesn't need any uh attention it's taking care of itself by design with that sort of gothic peaked roof style so it, it just slides oh, yeah. right off and we're in good shape so we have a heck of a hell of a good show coming up here laura and, uh, I know I'm really excited because um, you know how much I love um, I love the native plants and today Jim Search um, from Yale Peabody Museum will be up at the half hour to discuss them with us. Yeah, we're going to focus on native plants, how to grow Yay. them, how, why they're <laughs> our friends and you know our friends and family maybe even. Do you have any native plants in your family, uh, Laura? Any native plants? Well, in your so family, in my family. Yeah, do I don't any... know how to answer that question, <laughs> but <laughs> I know that native plants and native pollinators—the reason they like each other so much—is because they evolved together. 
So, yeah, I guess, you know, we all have native plants. Yeah, well, hopefully we're not spraying and uprooting all, all those plants. No, I hope not. By mistake, yeah. So, uh, all right then, let's get to it. We're going to start with the solar lunar report as usual. We'll go from there to the small farms report with Steve and then to our special guests at 12.30. All right, onward to the Solar Lunar Report. Well, it's very exciting because we now have, do you want to guess how much daylight we have um, today? I'm going to say 5.36 p.m. Until 5.36 p.m. I'm not going to guess the number of hours because. Oh, OK. That's what I. Yeah, but that's OK. But you're very close. We the sun rose today at 6.47 a.m. And we'll set at 5.26. Um, and twilight is until 5.54 tonight. So you'll like that. It's um, and since our February 1st show, the last show, do you want to guess how many how how long we've gained? How many minutes? Well, since I always guess exactly right, I'm gonna put it over to Steve. And say, okay. Make Steve, it's your make it's your Steve chance, Davis. Steve. <laughs> don't blow you know, it, Steve. I don't have a guess. I we've just I just been enjoying, you know, we've got real sunlight going on for the last week. I know which had been missing for quite some time. So uh now it seems like we have you know, so much, I don't, you know, I, my, my internal radar says we've got a ton of sunshine, which isn't, which isn't. The <laughs> we have an abundance before. of sunshine. It's just been, it's been so nice this last week to have sun. Uh, so I know people are feeling it. So I don't know. The days are feeling longer. I, I, I don't know what to guess, but, uh, but I've been really okay. appreciative of the sun. Well, in the last two weeks, every time, every time, every show we've gained more and more, it seems there's more and more each show. Um, we gained 34 minutes mm. and that's amazing for, it's wonderful for our next show which is in three weeks because because february has five um thursdays we will gain i want a drum beat here in the next three weeks wait hold on do you have a drum beat 56 minutes in the next three weeks we will have over 11 hours yay we're gonna that's, reach a well is that gonna, because that's not because of daylight savings is it well daylight savings doesn't doesn't affect how much daylight there is it just affects what the clocks are and <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna breach 11 hours on february 24th just so you can you know write it on your calendar and yeah so we have 33 days until summer begins on March 19th. Until spring. Until spring. Until spring, yeah. Okay. And then we have 126 days until summer in June. And, you know, and then it starts getting shorter again. Mm. <laughs> um, the Great North American Total Solar Eclipse is now 55 days away on April 8th. Um, and so... I, I found something interesting that I wanted to share. Um, do you know why it is? I mean, Steve might know this because of his astronomy background, but um, solar eclipse, it moves from the west to the east, but the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. So do you know why it is that it's opposite for a solar eclipse? I pass 
on that one. <laughs> Do you know Steve? Yeah, I, I want to pass. I, I want to put up like a diagram or a diorama. I want to put things in to, to help explain this. So, uh, no, I, I mean, certainly not something I thought about before. But now I want to. I want to. Now put you want to know. I, I have... in alignment and and uh, with the sun and, and see the sun and the earth and the moon. How why it would be that way? Right. It's exactly. It's it because it's the solar eclipse isn't from the movement of the sun. It's from the movement of the moon's shadow. And um, the Earth rotates east to west, uh, west to east, sorry. And it, it, if you're up in space, it would appear to be going counterclockwise. And it does a full rotation in about 24 hours. But the moon orbits the Earth west to east also, but it's slower. It takes about a month to orbit the Earth. So during a total solar eclipse, the moon comes between the Earth and the sun, which you probably realize now. Um, and when, when all three bodies will be lined up on the same plane and the moon casts a shadow um, onto the Earth. So the west to east motion of the moon becomes more obvious than usual since it's casting its shadow from the west to the east. And um, since the moon moves fast, it, the eclipse totality is only a matter of minutes in any given location. So does that make sense? Actually, could you repeat that? No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, you'll have to replay the, 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 the archive of the show and then you'll feel maybe you'll get it then. I will study it. Also, we have 14 days until Leap Day, which is February 29th. And um, and do you know why we have Leap Day every four years? Oh, uh, no. Okay. Um, <laughs> Steve's not raising his hand, so I'll well, just go I mean, into yeah. it. Yeah, you can go. I, I mean, my guess is we have to make up time because the, um, yeah. Yeah, the, the days and hours aren't perfect for the year. And so we've got to fill in. Well, it takes 365 days and six hours for the Earth to orbit the sun. And those extra six hours add up. And and six hours is one-fourth of a day, which is 24. So over four years, that's an entire day. So leap year evens things out every four years. But there is also an exception. Every 400 years, there is no leap day. You know, who knows? The next time is 2100. And Leap Day dates back to 46 BC when an astronomer told Julius Caesar about the amount of time it takes for the Earth's orbit around the sun. So, no, I'm just going to say that this is fascinating. I mean, even okay. though my eyes glaze over during part of your report, I'm those... going to start throwing things at you. That's right. <laughs> But you like it. You, you, I think, you know, it's interesting, I think, at least to me. And that's all that really matters. <laughs> <laughs> so in our sky this month, um, on February 22nd, um, there's an event. Um, right now, Mars is bright. In, right now, at this time of year, Mars is bright in the eastern sky shortly after dawn. But it's not very high in the sky and it's outshined by the sun, so it's hard to see. But on February 22nd, Venus will be much Venus will be much brighter and very close to the upper left-hand side of Mars. So that'll give a point of reference because Venus is, is brighter, so it'll stand out more and um, 
we'll be able to to see Mars as well on the 22nd, um, right at, right after dawn. Um, tomorrow um, is the first quarter moon, February 16th. Uh, February 24th is the full snow moon. Um, it's it's not a super moon, <laughs> which I'm going to keep saying until September when we have another super moon. But the um, the new moon we have on we had on February 9th was a super moon. So even though we couldn't see it, it was really close to the Earth. And it's I'm, I'm very relieved that we have had some snow now before the full snow moon. So um, anyway, that's my report for today. Yeah, just about that snow moon. So the snow moon gets its name because it comes during a snowy month. Is that that's correct? It's a yeah. it's a snowy month. And so it's called the full snow moon another there are i mean every month there's different names there's all different names but this is the most you know well you most used it's also um the full hunger moon right but talked about that yeah vincent mentioned mentioned that Mm -hmm. yeah and um so you could call it either but i think full snow moon is more poetic and romantic (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's less anxiety i don't like yeah i don't like thinking of people going hungry and nor nor deer nor other little critters oh yeah that's right because they can't find food although this year i think at least around here there's been hopefully more food for these critters you know i'm remembering when vincent gave his vincent k that is uh for listeners who haven't heard the show before Vincent K., the, the guy who gives the honeybee report uh, each month, first Thursday of each month, he said that um, he saw a, what would you call them, a clutch of robins sort of nestling under some branches out in one of the bee yards that he was, that he was servicing out there. And I was amazed by that because... Robins are sort of the harbingers of spring. If I'm, is that right, Steve? I mean, it, don't they sort of appear not really until spring has sprung, so to speak? Yeah, I expect to see them in the spring. They're one of they're one of those indicators of spring. Yes. Yeah, but so here they are already. That that's that's weird to me. But anyway, oh Laura, one more question for you. Um, did you did you get any comparative temperature readings? from uh, okay i got a lot of information to sh- sift through and so that'll be for the next show okay so we're going to start having comparative starting the next show yeah because right. i just did i did yeah it's it'll be then starting in march well that'll be that is to say comparing the average temperature readings of this winter with the previous winter and perhaps winters going back of maybe five six Right. One thing I did, one thing I did notice, which I thought was really interesting is that we have, I mean, we have warmed up a little bit and of all the seasons, winter is the most warmed of all the four seasons. So the climate change, if you want to call it global warming is, is reflected most in terms of what happens during our winters. That seems to be the um, season that's been the most warmed for some reason but as i said i'm going to do a deeper dive in the next three weeks before the next show 
Okay, so you're going to do one of those polar bear things where you jump in the, you jump in the. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that should be nice and toasty warm to go in the Long Island Sound. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Look, well, thank you, Laura. That was uh, once again an excellent report. Excellent. Thank you. So let's uh, let's go to the small farms report with Steve Mono on, at Masaro Farm, which is in Woodbridge, Connecticut. Well, you know, as we mentioned at the top of the show, it's really nice to have. Uh, you know, another moment of winter here with some proper snow covering the farm. And, and so that's feeling really nice. Um, and we'll enjoy it as long as we can. It looks like we've got cold temperatures at night for the next week or so and, and not getting too warm in the day that we will have sunshine. And um, yeah, it's a nice protective layer for the farm and it brings nitrogen to the soil as well. It sort of grabs that from, from the atmosphere and brings it into the soil. A nice slow release nitrogen is our main sort of uh, growth fertilizer for plants in the spring. So uh, we'll take some of that free nitrogen gladly. And, you know, we are still doing our um, harvest every other week or so, bringing to the farmer's market. will be this weekend, Saturday in New Haven uh, at the Conte West School. Uh, 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. and we'll have our farm stand open this Friday from 12 to 5. We are still harvesting carrots from one of our high tunnels. We're, we're harvesting kale and collard greens. We've still got a little bit of arugula and salad mix. And then we've got the products we made over the summer with our marinara sauce and uh, salsa and garlic scape pesto and, and eggs from our chickens as well. So the chickens are in one of our high tunnels um, and they, they kind of stay in there. They don't like to venture out into the snow. So, um, we've got it set so that we can roll up the sides and have them venture out during the day, but in the snow cover, um, they don't like to get out there too much. So we'll wait for the snow to melt before we, um, uh, let them out. Or if it sticks around a little bit too long, we can, um, shovel a path for them and, and help them get their, get their exercise, uh, beyond, beyond the, uh, tunnel, which is about 30 feet wide and 96 feet long. So they've got some good space in there. Uh, but, uh, whenever we can have those sides and doors open, we let them venture out to a little fenced in area uh, outside of the tunnel. How, how do uh, the, how do the, uh, chickens produce it in this season? Is it pretty much the same in terms of, you know, egg production? Yeah, they they are, so the chickens are um, responsive to daylight. Um, and so their uh, natural tendency is to produce fewer eggs in the winter. And then, you know, as a farm that we're hoping to, you know, continue to get eggs over the winter, we add a light bulb um, to their coop. So in the place where they nest or they roost, uh, we have a light bulb in there and it turns on at 5 a.m. So they start, you know, sort of wakes them up a little bit early uh, and it goes and, it go, you know, then it goes off with uh, the when the sun comes up. And then just before sunset, it, it turns on again and stays on till about 9 p.m. So we're giving them the sort of 16, 17 hours of sunlight to sort of keep them laying uh, at, a, at a sort of peak or close to peak level. So uh, we don't we see a little bit of a drop off. Uh, in their production, but but not much. Um, but if we if we took away the light bulb, we'd see a, a steeper drop off. So this is one of the ways to sort of keep them um, laying, you know, in not too an obtrusive manner. You know, we don't want to turn the light on in the middle of the night and have them fully <laughs> off their cycle. So we're just sort of adding a little daylight to the to the morning and evening uh, to keep them a little bit more active. And how many eggs does a, a chicken lay? You know, does do, do you 
laying chickens do they lay every day or, or more than once a day or they lay nearly an egg per day so um their their sort of cycle is is about 28 hours so they might lay an egg every day and they might lay an egg you know every other day or thereabouts so we're getting you know from right now over the winter we've got about 80 chickens in our flock down from about 150 over the summer just because of the pasture and the space that we have so we, we downsize our flock for the winter and we'll add some new chickens in um, and you know we're expecting to get an egg from 75 to 80 percent of those chickens each day um, which which is about accurate for us uh, and that's that's kind of enough for us to have eggs available to um, our farm stand and market. And then, you know, when we have many more people coming to the farm over the um, over the summer, we have uh, more eggs available for our subscribers. So I know you got rid of some of your chickens um, at the beginning of the winter or you sent them to a farm up in Vermont or something. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> so I'm just wondering, do you get more chickens in the spring? Yes, yes. Actually, in a few weeks, we'll be um, I'll be driving to Pennsylvania and picking up uh, a new flock of chickens. And the the remaining chickens that are here will go to a couple other farms. Um, we've already talked to about you know taking on year old birds who are still have a good bit of laying uh, life ahead of them. Um, but I get a little wary about mixing um, flocks and just for for health management. So you know in at different stages in the sort of the birds getting along. So we will move on from the remainder of our flock and have a new flock in and they won't be laying yet. They'll, we get them as what we call pullets. They're 16 weeks old. Um, so they've been raised from day old by someone else uh, through 16 weeks. And we will take them on at that point. Uh, and we expect them to start laying at about 20 weeks, uh, maybe 22 weeks and, and then 24 weeks, they should be at full sort of laying. That, that's our hope. And, the, you know, it, these numbers, uh, you know, in terms of how often they lay, how frequently they lay and what their laying sort of lifespan is, depends a little bit on the the breed of, of chicken. Um, so, but, you know, being here in Connecticut and that we are sort of targeting, um, you know, egg production, we are choosing breeds that are, uh, you know, that can handle, uh, you know, the, the swing in temperatures throughout the year here from being cold in the winter and warm in the summer. And, um, you know, that are, that are strong laying breeds as well. So I, I was wondering, um, someone was telling me that there have been hawks and other predators getting their chickens. And do you have issues with that? Or do you have some way of keeping them away from your chickens? Yeah, there are hawks around. I mean, I think it's a great thing that there are hawks on our farm that get at things. Now, we don't want them to get at our chickens. Um, you know, we are trying to... Um, you know, maintain the circle of life here and not not to prevent it. You know, our, we have deer fencing around our fields to keep the deer out uh, of our crops, uh, but allow uh, coyotes and bobcats and foxes in to get at things. But again, we don't want any of those to get at our chickens. So we do our best to um, keep them off. Um, so we have things like um, scare tape, a sort of flashy ribbon that will hopefully distract the chickens. Um, we provide shade structures. Um, to keep the the um, 
uh, hawks away and to protect the chickens. And, you know, we don't let them roam over all the acreage. They're in a, we're, we're sort of moving them throughout our field, but we're keeping uh, the sort of electric netting around an area to keep them confined. So there, it's a harder uh, target area for the hawks. And then, you know, one of our staff came up with a really ingenious uh, method to to help protect them further uh, by uh, creating sort of a, a netting that's attached to our um, our mobile coop. So it's just uh, sort of magnetized off the side of the um, off the coop and creating a little uh, canopy protected area, ex sort of expanding the protection of our coop to, to into their pasture area. Uh, so I think that really helped with us this last year. Um, but in inevitably, there will be some um, predation from hawks. Um, you know, but we, we prefer them uh, to get at the, you know, mice and voles and things that are, you know, going after our crops. And so uh, hopefully they, they don't get a taste for our chickens and they get more of the other things that are, uh, you know, competing with our crops out in the field. Steve, last uh, word from you. Doug, why don't you tell us, Give us a little update on the winter conference, the NOFA winter conference. Yeah, absolutely. So we have, you know, there's a number of things going on. The winter is always about sort of learning and gathering. And there's already been a number of great gatherings throughout the winter. But we've got on March 23rd coming up, Connecticut NOFA's uh, 42nd annual winter conference. It will be held this year at Eastern Connecticut State University in Willimantic. Um, Maya Van Rossum is the keynote speaker, and there are a number of great uh, workshops happening uh, at the conference in person there. And then uh, earlier in the week, I believe it's the 20th and 21st, there will be some virtual uh, workshops as well. So, you know, um, you can, you know, attend a number of, of workshops uh, remotely in the week leading up and then on the day of uh, that Saturday, March 23rd. Uh, and I should say Masaro is offering a number of programs as well. Um, you know, programs and events, one of the things that we do, we've got a composting workshop coming up this weekend uh, with Medi Domingo Medina in partnership with the uh, Town Sustainability Committee at the uh, Woodbridge Town Library. We've got a sustainable nutrition workshop happening, uh, a climate change webinar coming up. Um, we've got a comedy show coming up. We're talking, we're preparing for Celebrate Spring. And I want to say uh, just a plug for all the CSA farms up there, out there. Next week is National CSA Week. Uh, so this is a sort of national movement uh, to sort of raise awareness about CSAs and encourage signups because, um, you know, community supported agriculture farms, the idea is that 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 members of the community invest in the farm, uh, you know, for the season upcoming. And this keeps us from needing to take out money from the bank or get a loan. And, and you know, the community is the investment in the farm. And so uh, this sort of a national push, you know, across the country to get folks, uh, uh, you know, encourage them to sign up and, and encourage the CSA movement, which supports a lot of small uh, farms throughout the country. So that's coming up starting this Sunday through the next week. So keep your eye out for that push. You know, if you're following a farm and if you haven't signed up for your CSA yet, this is a really great time to do it. And Steve, just mention the uh, the website for CTNOFA. Yes, people C I'm sure can find out information about the conference. Right. So it's ctnofa.org. That's c-t-n-o-f-a.org. And um, they'll see a link right at the top there for the winter conference. And it'll have all the information and registration uh, details of the programs and such. Excellent. All right. Laura, why don't you uh, bring us in with our special guest today? Um, we have um, Jim Search, 
who's the education coordinator at the Yale Peabody Museum. He's also a master gardener and board member of the Connecticut Horticultural Society. He gives workshops throughout the state on propagating native plants from seed and how you can improve backyard wildlife diversity. All great things. Okay, Jim, are you still with us? <laughs> I am. Thanks yes. so much for joining us. I know you have a, quite a uh, caseload, so to speak, with all your native pals. But yeah, tell us all about what you do and what the, uh, the programs are at the Peabody Museum. Yeah, sure. And um, Richard, I just wanted to make one correction that I heard a little earlier that you know that robins are around year round. Oh, and, um, <laughs> and that many are. <laughs> Some migrate south and come back, but many stay through the winter and they, they hang out in, in wetland areas and eat berries. And um, so, and it's called a flock and a flock of robins. And, you know, actually uh, it's, it's uh, yeah, it, they, uh, so, so that gets, that fools people because people do think that, you know, that they're the first bird of spring. Actually, the first bird of spring is the red-winged blackbird. And uh, uh-huh. right about now to sort of like the beginning of March, or so the flocks return and uh, they're, they're one of the first birds to see. But so anyway, do the robins, uh, do they, do they have like some kind of a lottery system to see who gets to go south? Yeah, that's a really good question. I don't know, you know, what causes some to migrate and some not to. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, I don't know the answer to that, but it's a good, yeah. It's one of those nature's questions. There's a lot to answer about that. So, but anyway, yes, I, um, I work in the education department. I'm an educator at the Yale Peabody Museum and been there 22 years. And um, right now we are finishing up a, a big renovation and we're very excited about our opening this spring uh, after um, a huge renovation of the of the inside of the museum and an update in a lot of things. So, and I teach uh, programs for people of all ages and, um, also, you know, do a lot of adult education programs. And during uh, COVID, uh, I started a nature blog called Beyond Your Back Door. And it's, uh, if you want the URL, it's beyondyourbackdooronword.net. And so we have a lot of, um, I'm trying to, you know, I, I once said it was weekly, but uh, life is getting in the way. <laughs> so it's not, <laughs> it's not as... Uh, often as I'd like, but uh, it's on a variety of, we started, you know, when people were going outside and looking at nature a lot more during COVID and being around, being stuck in the house and going out in the backyard. So um, I was trying to sort of key in on some things that you could see. So, yeah, I do um, a variety of programs on a lot, a lot of sort of ecology and nature and science topics, but um I, I'm particularly passionate about how how I can show others about what you can how you can improve your yard for for wildlife. And you know, the average homeowner has most of their plants from Asia, believe it or not, about eighty percent or so, um, because they're very pretty, and that's what you know the the nursery industry is kind of pushes that a little bit. But um, I, I have to say that in the last number of years, many nurseries are are offering a lot more native plants. And as Laura mentioned earlier in the show, that 
they are tied in so much to the ecosystem, right? So that's that pollinators and plants um, have evolved together, as you mentioned. That's perfect. Perfect. I'm glad you said that. Have evolved together for thousands and thousands of years. But we've sort of broken that, you know, with with putting in plants and having having so much turf, um, so much lawn, which in the in our um, in New England, well, actually, you could say that the amount of of lawn or turf in our country equals the the land area of New England, which is is pretty sobering. <laughs> so, and, and it's it's a biological desert. So we can there's a lot we can do to help that. So. Okay. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more about the pantheon of native plants that people may not even realize are on their properties. I know I'm somewhat bemused by that issue. So perhaps you could you could tell us how, how we can identify them and encourage them. And then you also do it. I think you also do a program in seeding, you know, from, or growing natives from seeds. So maybe you could tell us a bit about that as well. Sure. Yeah. So the um, it, it may be hard for the average person to kind of go out and and identify all the different kinds of plants, but there are some some tricks and some things to help you with that. Um, there's a couple of online apps. One is called iNaturalist. It's just uh, I think it's iNaturalist.org. And uh, that you can get that and you can take a photo of it and it can identify the plant. So that's that's really neat. There's another one with uh, I think it's they they put out also something called Seek, which is a little simpler platform. There's a number of things that um, that help you identify plants. And yeah, there it, it, it's you're right, Richard, that a lot of people have them in their yards and not know the, that they are, are there, um, particularly some of our asters. There's. Uh, there's one called white wood aster uh, or blue wood aster. These are plants that you might think, oh, well, they're just weeds. But, you know, take a closer look and you'll see loads of of native bees and, and other pollinators on them. Uh, so that's, you know, there really are um, a number of them. And um, I consider myself uh, a real uh, proponent of there's a there's a guy who's an entomologist down at the University of Delaware, Doug Ptolemy, and he's written a number of books. One called "Bringing Nature Home," another called "There's a, Well, he's written like three of them. There's "The Nature of Oaks" uh, and uh, some others as well. And they're they're really great books. So I consider myself a Ptolemyite, if you will. But he he's all about that. That you know, just try to put in about try to you know work toward putting in 70% of your yard to native plants because the issue is is that um our insects are undergoing a decline and you know we think of um was it eo wilson a famous biologist said that insects are the little things that run the world <laughs> and they uh you know they're so important to to the whole ecosystem and important to us steve works you know, manages a farm and, you know, he knows all about that. Just that you have to have insects pollinating your vegetables and, and your fruits. And, and most of them are pollinated by insects. So, yeah, we need them around and we, we need to help them. And we can do it in our own backyard. So I do workshops on growing, you know, how to grow plants or what plants to put in your yard. And, um, yeah, a lot of them have to do with 
has to it also has to do with growing them from seed, which is really quite easy. And I I teach about workshops on how to do that with uh, milk jugs. You take a a gallon, you know, translucent, you know, milk or a water jug, one gallon, and you cut it in the middle and leave the yeah, you leave the uh, the handle that part of it so that it can kind of hinge up. Take the top off, cut some holes in the bottom, fill it with about four inches of of potting mix, and then put your seeds on top and plant them as deep as they are long. The seeds are long, and there are, oh, by the way, there are a lot of resources where you can find out and do that online. If you say winter sowing native plants, you can find find how to do that with milk jugs. But also, um, you you put a little bit, sprinkle a little bit of sand, um, a clear like cool filter sands, sharp sand, they call it, or masonry sand on top, just a thin layer to prevent um, a disease called damping off that can um, cause problems for seedlings. But these seeds, they do need a winter chill. And once you've, once you've planted those seeds and uh, you use a moist soil, the, the seeds are triggered by moisture and coolness, most of our, most of our native, native plants. So they go through this winter chill, it's called stratification. Uh, and by after they go through about 60 day, 30 to 60 days, then once the warm temperatures come around, that um, then they will germinate. And they're germinating in this little um, milk jug that you have. And then once the, the kind of really warm temperatures of you, you open up the jug and, and let it get some air in and you might remove the top after a while. I was going to ask if Steve had any comment on this, because I, I think there's some, I don't know what you would call it, maybe cross purposes with people that have farms and are growing maybe large acreages or multiple acre, acreages of vegetables and other plants that need pollination, that they cannot rely completely on native pollinators to do the job. And so they have they bring in honeybees for that purpose. Steve, can you make a comment on that in terms of the way your farm operates? Sure. Yeah, well, and I really appreciate hearing uh, Jim you speak about uh, the ways in which the, the native plants are propagated and such. And though we don't do as much of the, we really don't do any propagation of plants we have, uh, or in terms of native plants, we have planted a lot of native plants here on the farm. And, and part of our goal and my goal from uh, my arrival here now 15 years ago was to set up our farm with native plants throughout so that we are supporting native pollinators and with the hope that um, we can host enough pollinators to provide the pollination that we need. Now we also have honeybees here, um, you know, because we're interested in, in the keeping of, of bees and the production of honey and ensuring that we have adequate pollination. But, you know, for those of you who've walked around our farm, uh, you know, you know that we, we've, uh, if you've done a farm tour with me, we talk about all the native trees and shrubs that we've used to ensure that we have flowering as early in the season as possible to as late in the season as possible and a, a diverse array of food because different pollinators, you know, will need different kinds of, of forage. They, they can't just have one flowering species. So we want to have a range of families uh, of, of plants 
uh, flowering from as early in the season to as late in the season as possible. And then we use our annual crops as well to have things up as early in the season as possible and late in the season as possible. So not just the crops that we're growing for uh, production, but things like our cover crops like buckwheat and peas and, and oats that will flower and such. Very cool. Laura, what was your thought or question? Yeah, I have a question. Um, to what extent do you think people might have seeds in their yards that are from native plants that they haven't planted, but that they could they could get to and and nurture? That's a good question. Um, I'm sure people have some. Unfortunately, um, there is an issue with non-native plants and invasive plants that often kind of, you know, if you open up bare ground, there could be kind of unwanted, you know, kind of thugs, if you will, uh, that could, could take over and have to, and you sort of have to manage it. And I, th I think we're to the point where we do have to manage our landscapes, you know, because of the issue of, of invasives. Um, and these are plants that um, they don't provide um, the, the sort of the ecosystem services uh, that native plants do. They don't provide, um, for the most part, there maybe are a few exceptions, but don't provide the pollen and the nectar that uh, that pollinators need and a variety of other things that, you know, and they can choke out and uh, and take away light from, from some, you know, our native plants. Could you mention maybe actually even in different categories that we have here, we have invasives, we have imported plants you know that people mm -hmm. bring into their lawns from nursery yeah. things like that, but also the natives and maybe give us some in each category that so people sure can, okay. some examples yeah. yeah uh with invasives there there some of the the big ones are asiatic bittersweet um japanese knotweed japanese honeysuckle there's a variety i could go on and on with that so um <laughs> And I want to say that um, I am not telling, you know, I'm not advocating for everybody to get rid of the plants they have uh, from other other places. You know, when I mentioned a lot of our, you know, our landscape plants that people have in their yard are from Asia. I'm not saying that we have to totally replace our plants. I, I'd say, uh, you know, if you if you can work towards having 70% um, of our plants native, that would be great. And and you can do that by actually getting rid of um, a, some of your lawn a little bit at a time. And an easy way to do that is by smothering it. And rather than digging up the turf is just a, just a little bit of a time putting down wet cardboard, a couple of layers followed by wood chips or mulch, uh, you know, a nice deep layer, six inches or so. And then you can plant into that after a while. So um, some examples of natives, there's a beautiful, um, I, I'm I'm really an advocate of milkweeds. Uh, we have a beautiful milkweed. It's it's orange. It's uh, called butterfly weed, and it's unfortunate that all these natives, a lot of them, have the name weed after them because they really aren't weeds. They've you know they've evolved and been here the whole time. It's just uh, you know if somebody thought that they didn't belong there, you know they would call them. But there, <laughs> there's 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 also um, swamp milkweed. It's a nice pink color. And those take about 30 days to grow from seed. So you can still do that. You can put out seed and milk jugs even now, and you'll you'll have enough time. Uh, for, the, for the seeds that need longer time, um, a little bit of damp sand in a, in a Ziploc bag in your fridge, and then count 60 days and then plant that, and you can do it. 
Um, some other examples would be Joe Pieweed, Anise hyssop is a great, uh, a great native plant. Gets lots of pollinators. Uh, you know, there there are lists you can find. Um, by the way, I, as far as native plants and from seed, uh, Steve mentioned Connecticut Nofa. They have started a program called Eco Fifty Nine, where they took they gathered wild seed from you know from the wild, and they had nurseries grow the seed out. And then to, you know, to make more of the same kind of seed. And they're actually selling native seed from this region, ecological region, which is called Ecological Region 59, hence the name Eco 59. So if you go to eco59.com, I believe it is, yes. you can get to that site. Yeah, um, where you can you can actually buy the seed that was gathered from Connecticut. So. So I just wanted to put a plug in for that for Connecticut NOFA and that program, which is pretty neat. Um, other sources of seed are Wild Seed Project up in Maine. Um, there is a, a native plant nursery out in the Midwest called Prairie Moon Nursery that has a great. And it also, there are different kind of germination codes for uh, planting seed, and they tell you exactly what to do and when to put it out, how long it needs to germinate uh, and uh, what it requires. So those are um, those are some of the native plants. If you go to any, you know, a lot of the nurseries um, around here, you can find some of the others, for, you know, that are from other other places that people have put in their yards. Um, you know, uh, hostas are not native to Connecticut. Some of the ground covers like uh, vinca which can be, it's becoming more of an invasive. People have that as a ground cover, but it's spreading into our woodlands. So it's an issue. Uh, you know, there's, I, you know, I could go on and on with that, but. Uh, uh, just mention what Vinca looks like. So is that, is that, uh, is that, that's not English ivy, is it? That's different. Yeah. That would be another one that, that <laughs> has a potential to become invasive. Vinca yeah. has a, um, a very waxy, Regular small shaped leaf and has purple flowers in the spring, uh, very low to the ground. It's, so that that's what we call some of us call myrtle, I think. Yeah, some people call it myrtle. Some people, yeah. people call it periwinkle. Yeah, oh, but vinca okay. is the is the genus. Yeah, is that an Asian source plant? It is. Okay. Yep. Yeah, as as is a number of of the others. Um, yeah, I mentioned. Mm -hmm. Um, so I have one more question. Uh, what to you were talking about different places in the country to get um, to get the native plants. How important is it to get native native seeds? I mean, native seeds that are from Connecticut as opposed to say California or Maine or like what? How how important is that that they're from here? That's a great question. Um, I think ideally, I think it would be great if if we could start to do that um, and get more of our seed that's from the area where we live. You know, I, I don't think we're there yet to really change that change over. And so I don't I think that getting seed from Maine or or even, you know, Wisconsin is OK, because we have so far to go to change our yards. You know, and I, I think that pollinators won't mind the fact that if you have a New England aster, um, that you grew from seed from Wisconsin right. or Connecticut. Thank you. Yeah. 
yeah, coming down the stretch here, or even the home stretch, I should say, I just wanted to um, ask you, when you look at your lawn and you see things like plantain, you know, that which that is, I think, considered by many a weed that is undesirable on lawns, dandelions, um, moss that grows sometimes, it grows a lot on, on my lawn, um, wild strawberry, things of that sort. Are any of those invasives? And uh, if not, what are their benefits? Yeah, um, well, the one you mentioned, Richard, wild strawberry is actually a great native that attracts a lot of pollinators. And there, um, there are also some, uh, some of our moths and butterflies that will feed on the leaves of wild strawberry. So that that's a great one to have in your yard. I would encourage people to, and it can actually make a nice uh, ground, native ground cover. So yeah, definitely keep that one. Um, the others, you know, I, I don't, I don't use any kind of pesticides um, or herbicides really, uh, for the most part in my yard. I, you know, I let I let things like plantain and and dandelion grow. Plantain, there actually are some uh, butterflies that feed on on plantain. Um, yeah, another one you can think of are violets. People think, oh, you know, they can be sort of thuggish. And if you have this formal bed of flowers, it could really take <laughs> off, take off. But yet there's a beautiful orange butterfly, the great spangled fritillary butterfly that feeds on the leaves of, of uh, violets. So it's a, it's a great, great plant. So I, you know, I don't have a problem with having that even in part of my, you know, if I have some beds of other flowers, that's, you know, I keep it. Dandelions, um, they are, are not, a super rich source of nectar uh, and pollen for our our native um, bees, but um, they'll they'll feed on it somewhat. Yeah, so um, I I don't, you know, I'm not going out there and you know and taking care of them all. I just I just um, I'll mow high and let them let them be. I think I think dandelions are um, are good for honey for honeybees. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, they probably have, since they probably evolved with them in Europe. Uh huh. So, uh, so yeah. are dandelions considered a non-native plant? Y yes. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Wow. Who knew? Something in Switzerland, I think. Switzerland. Yeah. Okay. Whoa, we're getting some deep, deep information <laughs> here today. Deep dive. <laughs> She's back in the, back in the cold water again. Well, listen, folks, it's been a pleasure. It's been a blast, as usual. The Organic Farm Stand, which comes to you the first and third Thursday of each month, has been uh, rolling here today. want to thank uh, Steve Munno at Masaro Farm. Of course, uh, our special guest, Jim Search, from P the, he's the Educational Director at the Peabody Museum. James, thank you so very much for joining us. Oh, thanks very much for having me. Yeah. Thanks, Jim. We'll have to do it again. Laura, Maudlin, I'll see you again soon. We'll be back. When when will we be, we be back, Laura? Three weeks from today on March 7th. Ooh, she's got those dates in her brain. All right. Well, thanks so much. My name is Richard Hill, and we'll see you again in three weeks. Corn in the fields and listen to the rice when the wind blows across the water. Harvest is surely come. I work for the year.
union Cause she's so 